two readings of Holy Scripture this evening. I'll give you uh, the references uh, just now. You might want to keep one finger in one. In a moment, we are going to read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, and reading from verse 27. Matthew 5, 27, you might want to look that up. But before that, um, we're going to consider 2 Samuel and chapter 11. Our focus this evening will be the the portion of Scripture in in Matthew. But for for (coughs) the time being, let's read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and read this whole chapter. And this is the word of the Almighty God, this life-giving word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, sent Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die and as Joab was besieging the city he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell Uriah the Hittite also died Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of (laughs) Jerubesheth? I tried that all afternoon and still I didn't get it. Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Therbes? 
Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then if you would, friends, please turn with me to the New Testament and to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and reading from verse 27. Matthew 5, from verse 27. Again, this is God's Word. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Amen. And we praise God, don't we, for uh, these readings of his holy and inerrant uh, words. Friends, let us immediately come to God in prayer and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these readings of Scripture. We thank you uh, for that great blessing that we uh, take for granted so often, the fact that we are able here uh, to read Scripture publicly, that we do that without fear of the authorities clamping down on us. And this is, Lord God, we realize, a privilege that not all of your people have across the world. So we thank you that we can, we can read Scripture like this. Lord God, um, we come to you as the one who is king, the one who is sovereign. And uh, we pray, Lord God, um, for the people of Egypt, we uh, even today, are hearing of this travesty that has unfolded with reports of uh, 40 or more people killed in a fire in a church service in Egypt. And in many ways, uh, such a thing seems far off. But as we have already gathered as your people in church, it seems also very close to home. And so, Lord God, we pray to you and we pray for these families that have been affected by this, uh, this travesty, this disaster. There must be so much panic and sadness. There must be such grief for so many. Lord, we have already today learnt of a time when you had mercy on the Egyptian people. We ask that you would uh, have the same this evening for those in their grief. Lord, we confess our sin uh, to you. Um, Your word makes very, very clear the standard or the bar for acceptance uh, by you in salvation. We are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
then we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we look at our lives and we feel like tearing our robes because we know we have not done that. We have not done it. We do not do it. And uh, we are sinners, Lord God. We, We sin because we do not do what we ought to do and we do what we ought not to do day by day by day. And so as your people, we confess that sin to you just now before a holy God. But Lord, we are filled with such gratitude and joy. And we thank you, Lord God, because in light of that, how dear to our hearts is that verse in First John 1. The truth that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us, not just from some righteousness, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, cleanse the way. And so, Lord God, we thank you. Our, our whole lives, Lord God, they, they stand in gratitude to you for the truth of that verse and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, this evening we also look beyond our bounds and we pray for the missionaries that we support in different parts of the world. We pray for those who, although they are called to distant shores and love those places, we pray for those who may be tonight homesick, those who might be lonely. We pray for those missionaries. We pray for those who are settling into new areas of service. Lord, we pray that you would help them to settle quickly in what they're doing. We pray in particular for Adam, due to be with us soon. And we ask, Lord God, not so much that you would use him to encourage us, although, of course, we do ask that, but we pray that you would help us to be an encouragement to him in his ministry. And then lastly, of course, we pray again for our sister Elizabeth Williams. Lord, as a church, we pray to you. And we, we, we hold her up in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the strength that you've given her in the past week. It is remarkable to see it. But we do pray for her in her loss. And we pray that you would help her in her planning for the future. We pray that you would help her in her planning for a funeral. And we pray that you would help her to know your love, even in these moments just now. Lord, we commit her to you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Active is sharper than a double-edged sword, Lord God. And we are even hearing this evening... Uh, Something of your power, uh, even in the thunder around us. Lord God, how we ask uh, that you would show us your power and your might through your preached word this evening. Would you show us again uh, our sinfulness, only that we might flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and rest in our only hope. Uh, We pray. We ask for a work of your Spirit. Shed light upon this text, O God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A short while ago, just I think uh, a number of weeks ago, I said the following uh, in a sermon, a morning sermon. I said this, that it was in the area of sexual ethics that the church stands at greatest distance from the prevailing views of the society around. So it's in the area of sexual morality where we are seeing greatest variance between uh, what we think and what the world thinks, bottom line. I don't think that is a particularly controversial thing uh, to say. I'm sure you see what I mean. The world today, what does it declare? But anything goes... Isn't that right? So the world will say that the use of pornography is natural and understandable. The world will say that sexual license of any kind at all, really, is to be encouraged. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, 
We know that that is not right. But what should our attitudes be, Christian friends? Like we know, don't we, from Scripture, that holiness is to be pursued at all costs in the Christian life. We know that purity is prized. So what exactly is it that constitutes sexual sin? What is it that constitutes sexual immorality? And crucially, how can we as Christians fight the battle, fight the battle against that and fight the battle for purity and for holiness? Well, this evening, we are going to turn to Jesus' sermon uh, on the Mount tonight. Jesus' sermon on the Mount, and we are going to endeavor in God's power to consider some of these, what will we call it, some of these delicate issues and delicate matters. So first things first, you know what I'm going to say by now. I would invite you to make sure that you have this portion of Scripture. Certainly have Matthew 5 available to you. And the first thing that I I think we need to notice here or consider is the nature of sexual sin. That's the first thing. The nature of sexual immorality, the nature of sexual sin. Okay. Now, just as if you were at the theater, I don't know if you like to do that or not, but just as if you were at a theater or even a musical, uh, I think if we are going to understand uh, this particular portion of scripture, it's absolutely critical that we look and pay attention to the set and to the backdrop that we have here. So just as if you were at the theater, opera, musical, let's pay attention to the set, to the backdrop. So what do we have here? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is really doing is he is unpacking what we might call a kingdom ethic. You follow? A kingdom ethic, the values of the kingdom. What do I mean by that? What does that mean? Well, what Jesus Christ is not doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he is not showing us how a person can live in order to achieve or merit or earn the favor of God for salvation. I think we know that, don't we? We know that in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is showing us, he's showing us how a person having already come to Christ in repentance and faith, Jesus in this sermon is showing us how that person then should live. Do you see it is kingdom values, kingdom ethic that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you uh, know the Sermon on the Mount well, I'm sure that you do, you'll know that this section that we're in here just now is actually one of six sections that all begin roughly in the same way. So this portion tonight is one of six times where Jesus begins and says roughly, he says, he begins, you have heard it said. Okay, so these are sections, six of them, where what Jesus Christ is doing is he has taken commonly held views of the law by the Jews of the time, six sections, where he shows that those commonly held views of God's law are (laughs) entirely insufficient and inaccurate. So six times he does that with God's law. And if you had coffee and you're with me, then perhaps you can notice the progression because just look if you've got the Bible at the previous section and look at verse 21. Now, do you see the previous section? Ah, you see the progression, don't you? Where in the previous section, verse 21, Jesus deals with the sixth commandment, doesn't he? And he shows that do not murder actually includes undue anger. What does he do now? What's the progression in our section? He moves from the sixth commandment now into the seventh commandment. And he shows us what is really meant by not committing adultery. Do you see the progression? Now, enough, I suppose, uh, by way of context. Let's get really to the heart of the matter uh, this evening. Because if you're on Twitter, 
as you might be, or if you keep a pace, or try to keep a pace with theological discussion, you will know that there is all manner of debate today about what exactly constitutes sexual sin and sexual immorality. I think largely it's come from uh, discussions about homosexuality, discussions about homosexuality and the church. And then suddenly, because of that, there's a lot of discussion about, wait a minute, well, what is sexual sin? When is God's law transgressed? Is it when we act on impulse in certain ways? Or are some of these impulses themselves actually transgressing God's law? You see, where does sexual sin begin? What is at the root of these things? And... In verse 28, we have to ask, when Jesus says here, we break God's law through lustful intent, what do we ask? We ask, well, what exactly is meant by that? Where does sexual sin really begin? Well, um, I think that the best way to begin to try and understand this is by considering the first reading that we had uh, this evening in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, That's a chapter you know well. David and Bathsheba. I think it's one of the saddest uh, stories in the Bible, isn't it? Where David's not just his selfishness, but his sexual immorality leads to the ruin of uh, so many people's lives. Here's the point that I, I want to make. The Hebrew text in in 2 Samuel 11 is very, very helpful for us. We are told in that chapter, not this, we are are not told that David on that roof, he caught a glimpse of Bathsheba. He didn't just catch sight of Bathsheba. No, what the author does in 2 Samuel, he uses a, a Hebrew idiom, and it's an idiom for lingering or a Hebrew idiom for intensification. Now, let me read it almost as it is literally, and you will see what I mean. So it's not that David, oh, on the roof, he caught sight of her. Listen, David caught a glimpse, and David looked. He looked. And he saw that she was beautiful to look at. You begin to see one writer explains it like this. He says, for David, a glance became a gaze. And that does help us, doesn't it? We're asking, well, where does sexual sin begin? Where do we transgress God's law in these things? And what's the answer? It is not just about physical activity. No, our law-breaking begins with undue desire, doesn't it? It begins with lust. I think we realize this. I think that that each of us in here, we know that we can look at a person and we can just appreciate that they might be good looking. We can do that with integrity in a sense, can't we? Surely? Like we can uh, look at a woman and, and recognize they might have high cheekbones or look at a a bloke and recognize a chiseled jaw or something like that. We can can do that, but when does sin happen? Where Where do we transgress God's law? I think we know it's when there's a second look. There's a prolonged look when our imagination begins to take over when we begin to envisage intimacy even, you see it, don't you? Committing adultery. This is not just about an extramarital physical affair. This really is inward. This really is about undue desire. This is about our lust. Now, you'll have to take what I'm about to say for, for granted, I, I guess, um, it's really interesting to read, yeah, take it for granted, really interesting to read um, the biblical commentators on this particular little chunk of scripture. 
You, you can appreciate, I'm sure, that uh, most sort of commentaries on the Bible, they have their own particular style or tone, can you? So let's say it's a grammatical commentary, you know, a textual commentary on the Greek text. We know what's the tone going to be. It's going to be quite academic, isn't it? It might be quite, quite dry sometimes. There you go. Or a devotional commentary. We know as a congregation, we come to that, we know it's going to be fairly light. Now, this is what, what I want to say. In nearly all of the commentaries on this particular portion of Scripture, the very same thing happens. Regardless of what type of commentary, nearly all of them, the same thing happens. What happens? The writer gets to this portion of Scripture and the tone changes. They get to this section of Scripture and suddenly this solemnity falls over the writer, and I think you know why. Guilt. Shame. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, nowhere do we have such a terrible exposure of our sin as in the words of our Lord at this particular point. A chap called Don Carson, that some of you will know and have heard of says he follows it up he says this I write this line with great shame which one of us is not guilty of committing adultery and friends he's right I know that there are of course degrees of struggling with what we are talking about and, and focusing on this evening but given what we have just seen about the very nature of adultery and lust who here would put their hand up and say I have never done this who here would say I have never broken the seventh commandment of God we see something of the nature of sexual sin Second of all, unless you were thinking it was going to get lighter. Second of all, the gravity of sexual sin. The gravity of sexual sin. Um, okay, if I was to say this evening that there is a prevalence of sexual immorality in Scottish society today, I don't think there would be many of you that are going to fight me on that one. Okay. If I was to say there's sexual immorality, sexual sin rampant in Scottish society. It's true, is it, is it not? I don't think it's particularly controversial to say that. And that is sad. But there is something I think that's sadder still. And that is the fact that sexual sin is rampant in today's church. In the church of Jesus Christ. Barely a week goes by where we don't hear of some church minister or some church member who's fallen into sexual sin and is disgraced. Uh, one Puritan writer, I think it was John Flavel, 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 he said this, and he was right, that lust is a quicksand that has sucked in and destroyed countless believers. Lust is a quicksand, sucked in, destroyed countless believers. And he's right, of course, but the question that follows from that is why? I mean, why is this a sin that we seem not to take seriously? Why is it that we will look at stealing and frown, look at murder and frown. And, and why is it sexual sin that sees so many Christians fall? Well, there's lots of answers to that, but surely part of it is that. Surely part of it is our failure to appreciate the sheer gravity of these things. Do you not agree with this? That as a church, what happens is that we seem to be buying into a lie. As Christians, we buy into this lie that because these things are inward, that because so much sexual immorality is behind closed doors and apparently secretive, we have bought into the lie the devil is trying to sell us, that because it's inward, private, secretive, that it's not that serious. 
not as serious as other sins. Well, if you hear nothing else this evening, please hear this, that though it might be temporarily secretive, our lust is a serious matter. There are so many hidden, invisible, spiritual consequences from our undue desires and from our sexual sin. And are there not, come on, are there not places where we can look to see again from God the gravity of this subject that we're dealing with tonight? Are there not places we can look? First of all, look at this particular text. I would ask if it's possible to project verses 29 and 30. If you've got a Bible there, look at verses 29 and 30. Now, I'm talking about gravity. So you can notice in front of you, you can notice the repetition. Do do you see what is repeated by our Lord? Do you see? It is the idea of hell. Now, we talk about hell in the life of the church, do we? I would hope. I even had a conversation over coffee about hell this morning. That was not light at all after uh, the service. We talk about hell. We mention hell. But here, if it's repeated, what exactly is our Lord and Savior talking to? What exactly does he mean here? Well, you'll know perhaps that the word that he is using at this point in Matthew 5 is the word Gehenna. So Gehenna, what is that? It was a place located, if you're looking at Jerusalem, it's located on the south side of Jerusalem. It was located in what, was, what is called the Valley of Hinnom. Now, listen carefully, please. Yes, Gehenna it came to be used as a rubbish dump. So it was, it was the city rubbish dump, and it was a place that was always smoking, And because it was the rubbish dump, there's always fires to burn the rubbish. Yes, that's true. More importantly, more critically, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, was a place linked with pagan worship. So tonight, for your homework, you can look at 2 Kings 23. And what will you find there? You will find pagan worship. Now listen carefully. You will find in the Valley of Hinnom, it was a place linked to child sacrifice. And because of these atrocities, in the Jewish mind, Gehenna soon was linked to the idea of eternal punishment. So for the first century Jew, they think Gehenna, they think not just fire, but eternal fire. They think about Gehenna, they think about the eternal condemnation of God on sin. So Christian friends, Do you not see what Jesus Christ is doing in Matthew chapter 5? Are we in this room for a moment thinking that our lust is not a significant matter? Hear from our Lord. See the unaddressed sexual sin. Unconfessed sexual sin. It really is something that endangers the soul of man. So we can look here to see the gravity of our lust. But is there not, Christian friend, an even more obvious place that we can look to be reminded that our sin is serious? Where would we look? We would look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, as we do that, we do this every service, but this evening, as the church tonight, as we think about the cross, as you consider Golgotha in light of this subject matter. Can I ask what occurs? What happens for you? What is your response this evening as you think about the cross of Jesus Christ in light of this? In light of our lust and our sexual immorality, this evening, are we not immediately filled with gratitude to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? For what has Jesus Christ done for you? He has carried your sin, all of your guilt in relation to this, and all of your shame. Given our weakness when it comes to this subject matter, does that not fill the heart of the church with joy and gratitude? 
doesn't it? We are so, so, so guilty in these things. And we have such a glorious Savior. What has Jesus done? The, the righteous one, consider it, that he has willingly on that cross, willingly borne the punishment for all of your filth. He has willingly borne the penalty for all of the dirt and all of the shame. He has willingly accepted that, that wrath from God the Father. So yes, we, we look at Golgotha, don't we almost break down with, with gratitude? Oh Lord Jesus, thank you. But what else happens as you ponder Golgotha? Are you not right now face to face with the severity, the gravity of this sin? You think about it, please, for a moment. So serious is your lust that the only possible way that this has been dealt with has involved God the Father punishing his only beloved son for you. Is it not time that as a church we take this seriously? Are you thinking this is insignificant? Consider it has taken the very lifeblood of the righteous Son of God to see you today forgiven and cleansed from all of this wickedness. So we see the nature of sexual sin. And then secondly, we see the gravity. Christ Jesus here speaks of hell in relation to the sin. And then thirdly and lastly, we see that battle uh, with sexual sin, the battle with sexual sin. Here, of course, we get to that crucial matter that we mentioned right at the beginning of this service. How do we fight for purity Christian friends, how do we fight against lust? We know that we have to. We know that we must do this in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But how do we battle for purity, for the honor and glory of God? Well, yes, Jesus gives us instruction in this particular text, and we will get to it. I just want to widen our gaze ever so slightly. What I want to do just for a moment, very briefly, is to consider what God teaches us elsewhere in the Bible. Do you not agree with your minister that the church needs all the practical instruction it can get about sexual immorality? So what does God say to us about fighting for purity elsewhere? How do we do this? I want to mention four things very, very briefly. First of all, how do we fight? One, we pray. And you say in unison, how insightful, Andy, don't you? Uh, We pray. How did you come up with, with that? But my response to you, in all seriousness, would be, do we do this? Do we pray for ourselves? Ourselves, do we pray for others when it comes to this subject matter? James chapter 4, verse 6. What does it say to us? You know it as a memory verse. Surely God opposes the proud. What's the next bit? He gives grace to the humble. Oh, hear it. If this evening you are struggling with this matter, God is a God who gives grace to the humble. Are you struggling? They go in prayer to God and, and perhaps even set aside, time aside every day, even separate to your regular devotional times. And go. And plead with God on your knees, humbly ask him for grace for this fight. But pray. Two, how do we fight for purity? We run. If you're uh, regularly at St. Peter's and if you're here for our morning services, you know we're going through the story of Joseph. Uh, Now, 
What's that uh, very famous uh, incident in regard to this? We have in the book of Genesis, and Joseph, you know it, don't you? He encounters sexual temptation, Potiphar's wife. And what do we know? How does he respond? He legs it, doesn't he? He flees, he runs. We know that. What we need to appreciate is how consistent that theme is throughout our Bible. God does not just provide you an example in Joseph of someone running from sexual temptation. Time and time again, God commands it of you to do the same. Later, go to 1 Corinthians six eighteen. Later, go to 2 Timothy two twenty two. And what will you hear from God? You will hear this. Flee. Run away. And so I'm asking you, In the Christian life, are you ready to run? Are you actually living the Christian life on your heels? Ready, if sexual temptation comes, ready to get up and get out of there, even physically. To leave the room, to leave the house. But surely we see we must pray, but we must run. Three, how do we fight for purity? We must return. What do I mean? I suppose this in some ways is for those who are married, uh, in a sense, for those who are uh, in, uh, in a marriage relationship. Um, I think it's true that when we are single, we can tend to think like this, that we can think that lust is a problem and a weakness uh, associated with singleness. And we can think that things will change if only God would provide a spouse for me. And there may be truth in that, but what a number of the people in this room who are married would surely affirm is that it ain't quite as simple as that. And if you are married, and if you are really struggling with us, and you're married, and you are looking at things that you ought not to be looking at, I want you to listen to Proverbs chapter 5. God says this, let your delight be in the wife of your youth. Again, Flavel says that we need to focus our desires lawfully. Now, do you see the idea we ought to return to our spouse? God has been so good to us. If we are married here, God has given us a partner for the focus of our passion And not to put too fine a point on it, we perhaps need to make more effort with that gift that God has given us. Four. So we pray, we run, we return. And then the last of these is that we worship. I think if I was to ask you to think of an old-time free church minister, a minister from yesteryear, I think in a congregation like this, be no surprise if you were to go for uh, Robert Murray McShane, okay? I would imagine that's, that would be number one on the list. Uh, one of his, I suppose, contemporaries almost, is another famous minister by the name of Thomas Chalmers. Do we know that name? Read about Thomas Chalmers. What I simply want to do is to give you the title of a lecture. I don't think it was a sermon, but a lecture that he gave many, many years ago. And I just want you to focus in and wrestle with just the title of the lecture. Hear it. He preached this lecture, spoke the lecture, entitled, wait, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now think about it, wrestle with the expulsive power 
of a new affection. Can you see the idea? This was a lecture on 1 John chapter 2. Chalmers is making clear that one of the most effective ways for us to rid ourselves of a particular sin is to know the power of a superior pleasure. So one surefire way of sin loosening its grip on us is if we do what? If we look to Christ and fall in love with Christ to a greater degree. And if you are in here and you are struggling in these matters, struggling with sexual sin and lust, you know, Christian friend, that that is what you need to do. This week, I urge you, go to Jesus Go to him in his word. Go to Jesus Christ in prayer. And as you behold the loveliness of Jesus Christ, you will feel the attractiveness of this sin fall and fade away. Now there's course, there is so much more to be said, but I think it's important in closing, just that you and I do this, in closing, in just a word, we notice what Jesus says to us here. So we've looked at these four things from elsewhere. What practical instruction does Jesus give you tonight? Here, Matthew 5. Perhaps, again, we can project it. Look at verse 29 with me, friends, please. What is Jesus' practical instruction? Take a deep breath and read it. What does he say? He says to you, if your right eye causes you to sin, what's the practical application? Tear your right eye out if your right hand causes you to to sin what is it cut, cut it off <laughs> i didn't i'm not sure that i need to say this to you but i'm going to say it for safety's sake <laughs> this is a metaphor this is not literal i see it because there are those in church history who have made that mistake Uh, You'll know the story, Oregon, of Alexandria, a man devastated by his own sexual immorality, comes to Matthew chapter 5, and what does he do? But he allegedly, apparently, dismembered himself. This is a metaphor, but still. Could our Lord have used any more dramatic language. I mean, you see it, don't you, what it is that Jesus Christ is calling for from from us? John Stott, he said, this is not mutilation. This is mortification that's called for. And you see it, even if it is painful, as tearing out the right eye would be, even if the cause of the sexual temptation seems essential to you as the right hand clearly does. What is Christ imploring of the Christian here? He's saying, rip it away. Whatever it is, how painful it might be, you need to tear this, tear this out. And so, Christian friends, I am urging you to think about that But more, I am urging you to give prayerful consideration to this this week. Do not let this sermon, these words of our Lord, fall to the ground. So I am asking you, if you're struggling, what is it that is leading you into sexual temptation? You need to think prayerfully about it. Is it your computer? Okay, Download accountability software or throw it out? Is it your phone? You know, looking at things that you should not be looking at on your phone? And buy a 1990s brick phone if you need it. Is it the stuff that you are watching on Netflix, on Prime? Really? Is it that that is sparking these ideas, leading you into sexual temptation? Then get a grip and stop watching these things. Is it time by yourself? Is it inactivity 
as it seems to have been with David, then get out more. But whatever it is that is leading you into temptation, leading you into sin, hear Jesus. Hear our Lord's dramatic language and rid your life of whatever that is. Take dramatic steps. And I end with one last exhortation to you. Please, if you are struggling, please tonight, go to Jesus Christ. Please go to him. Jesus Christ in John chapter 4, he meets the woman at the well, doesn't he? The woman of Samaria. What can we say about the woman of Samaria sensitively? We can say that she's got a bit of a backstory. We can say about her that when it comes to these matters and adultery and numerous partners and so forth, she is a checkered history. But what do you see? You see Jesus deal with her so gently, don't you? You see Jesus even honor her as she turns to him. He honors her with this explanation and unveiling of his identity. What does he do? But he accepts her and he forgives her. And perhaps tonight you need to be reminded that is the heart of your Lord. And tonight, if you're struggling with sin, go to Jesus because tonight he is ready to accept you. He is ready to forgive you and to cleanse you. This evening, I implore you, run to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as Martin Lloyd-Jones has pointed out, Nowhere else do we see such a terrible exposure of our sin as in the words of the Lord at this point. And yet, we are so grateful that we can come to you on bended knee and you are a God who forgives your people. We thank you that though our sin is great, your grace is greater. We thank you that upon that cross, You have dealt exhaustively, comprehensively with all punishment that is due to us for our law-breaking. We can do nothing but say thank you, O Lord. Uh, We pray these things, asking you for your help in these matters. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude our... our